0: And Lord, we do pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say from your word today, Lord. We pray for open hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from my perspective, maybe from your perspective, but from my perspective as a Bible teacher, I feel like I just taught this, you know, every Easter season. Of course, Palm Sunday, we go to one of the four gospel accounts, and we look at the triumphal entry, and that's what we see at the beginning of our text today. But of course, we're here because chronologically, that's where we're at. We, f- we finished uh, chapter 10 last week, and so we're here at the beginning of chapter 11. And uh, I think that it's important for us, especially when we feel like or think that we're really familiar with the portion of scripture, and perhaps we think, well, there's nothing more I could learn from this. We need to be very, very careful. Because, you know, the Word of God is different from any other book. It's alive, the Bible tells us. It's the living Word. And so it's alive. And so for the believer, maybe not true for the non-believer, but for the believer, every time we go to the Scriptures and we read the Scriptures and we pray, asking the Lord to give us insight or understanding, He will show us something. And sometimes we'll see something fresh that we never saw before. So triumphal entry. It was Passover, Passover for the Jews. Passover, as you may or may not know, was the highlight of the Jewish people. I mean, it was the pinnacle of their feast, and it would be a time of great celebration and joy. And so from their perspective, there's, there's joy and, and uh, the excitement of coming to Jerusalem and, and celebrating, remembering Passover and all. But then remember that you have the Romans. The Romans were occupying Israel at that time, Jerusalem. And so from their perspective, it was a headache. But from their perspective, the population of the city, of you know, as far as population of Jews, Jewish pilgrims, would grow up to three times the population. And so for them, it was a time where if there's going to be an uprising, it would probably be during the Passover. And so we've got to watch ourselves. We've got to be careful. So from their perspective, there was surely tension in the air. So joy on the side of the Jews and tension on the side of the Romans. And Jesus, of course, is in the midst of all of this, and he's making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's interesting that Mark tells us that, in verse 1, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, and I say it's interesting because the other gospel writers don't mention Bethphage. And I think it's interesting because it fits in with the context of our text, and and, and it's, it fits in this way. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. So that's what it means, Bethphage, house of unripe figs. And then Bethany is mentioned. And Bethany is house of figs and dates. So that kind of tells us that there were probably a lot of figs and dates there to eat. So Jesus, he makes his triumphal entry. He he calls two of his disciples. He sends them out to retrieve a colt, a donkey colt. Now Matthew tells us that it wasn't just the colt that they brought, but it was the mother and its colt that they brought to Jesus. And so they were given the instructions, and, and off they went. Now, question. Now, this isn't necessarily a question for us. This is more of a question for the Jews at that time. How will Messiah come? The Messiahs had the scripture. They had, of course, the, the law and the prophets. And, and as they would go through the law and the prophets, they no doubt would ask themselves, how, how will the Messiah come? Well, the Messiah will come lowly and humble, riding on a colt, the colt of a donkey, as prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. But the scriptures also said Messiah will come magnificent and conquering, coming in the clouds, as in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So how will Messiah come? See, there was a question mark for the Jews at that time. How will he come? In fact, some rabbis taught that Messiah would come humbly, as we see in Zechariah 9.9, 9, to an unworthy Israel. But, but Messiah would come conquering, triumphant, as Daniel shows us in Daniel chapter 7.13, to a worthy Israel. And because the people of Israel were full of pride, like many people today in the world, you know, they did not expect a lowly, humble coming of the Messiah. So, in one sense, they weren 't looking, but the people, of course, they were looking and, and many of the people that that took their clothes or their outer garments off and they would throw them on the road and, and so that Jesus could walk over that or at least the colt and its mother could walk over their clothes and they would cut down palm branches or leafy branches and And they're doing this because the scripture tells them that that's what that generation, the generation of the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, that that, that's what they would do. And so they're doing these things. So from their perspective, there was surely a group of people that believed, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But of course, their understanding of the mission of the Messiah wasn't clear either. No doubt they were thinking, many of them were thinking, finally we'll be done with Rome and he's the one to do it, you know, as Jesus comes riding in on the colt of a donkey. Have you ever rode a donkey? I rode a donkey. I rode, I rode a donkey a few times in Knott's Berry Farm uh, back in the, the 60s. You know, people have a hard time believing, my kids I should say, have a hard time believing that when I was a kid, my mother worked for a short time, she worked a graveyard shift. Now, I'm not saying she worked in a graveyard, she worked a graveyard shift, and so um, she would work during the night, and on Saturdays, um, my father would take my sister and I out, usually we'd go to breakfast, and then we'd go to Knott's Berry Farm early in the morning and walk around Knottsbury Farm, because there was no fence around Knottsbury Farm. Originally, they put the fence around Knott's Berry Farm because this is going back in the 60s because the hippies were going into the, uh, the mine, you know, the mine shaft ride. They were going in there and just kind of hanging out. And so then eventually, they would, but uh, they used to have a donkey ride, you know, and you could ride the donkeys around. When I was a little boy, I was in Cub Scouts, and we had a father-son outing, and the outing was we were going horseback riding. Somehow I got a donkey. And um, the donkey was stubborn. I remember a friend of my dad's, he had a switch, and he kept hitting that thing, you know, trying to get it to go. And it would move a little bit and then stop. And finally, once it started moving, my saddle, which was not cinched up tight enough, went, and I was underneath the donkey, looking up at the donkey's bottom side. But I think of that, when I think of Jesus making his triumphal entry on the colt of a donkey, I think of how... In one sense, an impressive that would have been. You know, people would just look, and they would say, and how do you ride a donkey in a dignified way? My sister always had horses, you know, and horses are dignified. They they got some class. (laughs) But a donkey, you just bounce up and down. Which was it? How will Messiah come? Well, the answer is both, biblically speaking, both. Messiah will come lowly, riding on the coat of the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But Messiah will also come magnificent and conquering, coming in the clouds, as in Daniel 7.13. We're waiting for that coming of the Lord, coming of the Messiah. Both are true with a large gap of time between the first and the second advent. Now, guys, if you are if we were reading the scriptures and all we had was the gospel of Mark, we might come to the conclusion that this was the very first time that Jesus came to Jerusalem. This is why it's important to be students of the Bible. This is why it's important as we're studying, as we're going through the gospels to read the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. Well, I would suggest reading all four of the gospel accounts that we have so we can glean as much information as we possibly can. In fact, from John's Gospel, we see Jesus going up to Jerusalem on a regular basis. And no doubt, Jesus, because he was Jewish, would have gone up to Jerusalem for every feast of the Jews. Because it was, it was expected of Jews, especially the Jewish men, to make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. So I want you to note a few things that kind of jumped out at me. First of all, in verse 2, it says you will find a colt. And so the question I have, uh, how did Jesus know that there would be a colt there? And so depending upon, you know, your <laughs> thinking, you could say, well, obviously, he he, he set this thing up. He somehow broke away from the others. He went, he found a cult and its mother. He paid the owner of it. He says, listen, how many shekels will it cost? I just need it for an hour or so, you know, a few hours, make my triumphal entry. So, okay, have that available on this day. So you could look at it that way, or you could see it as, well, he's the Lord. (laughs) That's how he knew there was a cult there. It's interesting that they were told to say if the owners, if those there said, "What are you doing, loosening the coat?" that they were to say, "The Lord has need of them," it's them, Matthew; it or him, in Mark's gospel, and they'll let they'll let you take them. And of course, I think that's worth noting. But another thing that I think jumps out at me is it says in verse two, on which no one had. Set Now, if you were someone setting up, you know, you're trying to, now Jesus, and some people see Jesus like this, that there's Bible prophecy, you know, Zachariah lived long before Jesus, and so he's got to fulfill these prophecies, and he's got to set it right, and that he's just working so hard to do this, rather than these things just simply unfolding, because it's God's will, it's God's plan, it's God's timing. I would suggest to you that the fact that the cult was unbroken no one had ever sat on it indicates something greater than jesus just setting this up i mean if you're going to set it up you'd think that you would you would want something that's not going to try to get you off its back and i think it's speaking of the fact that jesus again the lord of the lord of lords as he sits upon this unbroken donkey there's peace In fact, that's how Jesus came. He came riding a donkey. He came as a man of peace. And that's really the picture that we have here in the triumphal entry. And it's fitting for Jesus because Isaiah, again, going back to the Old Testament, Isaiah tells us that Jesus is the prince of peace. And so Jesus, when he came his first advent, it will not be true of his second, but at his first advent, Jesus did not come to Israel as a conquering king. He came to Israel as the suffering, though triumphant, servant. Jesus came to Israel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'll tell you, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you need to do so, because time is running out. I don't mean it to sound like a threat, but I do mean it to sound like a warning um bible prophecy when you open up the scriptures when you read the scriptures when you're reading the the gospel accounts of jesus so often we see reference to bible prophecy by that i mean a prophet said this a prophet wrote that this happened long ago and now we're seeing the fulfillment of it and god does that because god wants his people to know what's coming next Not every detail of what's coming next, but things pertaining to him. And so the Lord, he so faithfully, he would speak to the prophets. He would reveal to the prophets. The prophets would reveal to the people. We see many times that the children of Israel, sadly, their ears were dull. Their hearts were hard. They would not receive. They did not accept the message from the prophets. But God was faithful to declare these things before they happened, so that when they happen, they might, and we might know that he is God. So, have you placed your faith in the Prince of Peace? Have you placed your faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Have you placed your faith in the triumphant servant? You must, you must. Time is running out. So we have the triumphal entry. Now, I want you to note this. I think It's important. You have the triumphal entry, you have the fig tree, so the withering of the fig tree. Then you have the cleansing of the temple, and then you have the lesson of the fig tree. So the context is really important. At face value, you might come to the lesson of the fig tree, and you might say, okay, the fig tree. The whole thing was about praying. Praying in faith. That's the whole purpose of the fig tree. That's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. And and that's the whole lesson of the fig tree. It's obvious. It's apparent. There it is in the text. And I suggest to you that that was part of the lesson, but not the fullness of the lesson. The context is important. First of all, I want to ask a question. Again, I'm asking these rhetorical questions just to stimulate your thinking. I don't want necessarily an answer from you, but, but the question is this, did Jesus need the colt? You know, we never see Jesus riding on a colt or a horse or anything. We see Jesus walking, and we see Jesus on a boat going across the, the sea, the Lake of Galilee, back and forth. Well, we don't see him riding on an on a animal. Did he need it? And the answer to the question is yes, he needed the cult. He needed the cult because he was fulfilling Bible prophecy. Guys, there's a there's a pattern here. He was fulfilling Bible prophecy. What Bible prophecy was he fulfilling? He was he was fulfilling Zechariah 9:9. He was fulfilling Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. He was fulfilling Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Guys, this is Listen, if the Bible's boring to you, it could be because of two things. One, you need to be born again so that you have the Spirit of God within you that takes the Word of God and quickens it to your spirit, you know, makes it alive for you. Or you're just simply not spending time in the Word of God. And and I think that this is true. I mean, if if the the data is correct, you know, we're told that 9% of professing Christians read their Bibles daily? It's no wonder that there is a drought. You know, prophet of old said that there would come a time when there would be a drought in the land. A drought of hearing the word of God. Not a drought of water. We have enough of those going on, don't we? But a drought of hearing the word of God, a famine. And it's because we're not feeding ourselves So, Jesus, though we see him throughout the Gospels, you know, we see him doing almost anything he could to kind of suppress public worship or, or, you know, praise of him during his ministry. But on this particular day, it's almost as if he invites it. And the reason he was inviting it is because this was the day. Now, I've emphasized this many times as I've taught through this portion of Scripture, wherever we find it in the Gospel accounts, and you guys know it, that this day, this day, what was the day? Well, the day was, the day was April 6, 32 AD. The day was the exact day that God revealed to Daniel, the exact day, precisely the day. I emphasize this because there are too many Christians that seem so unmoved by the Word of God. It's just we're so nonchalant about it. But I'll tell you, when you read the Word of God, when you study the Word of God, when you see these things unveiling, you say, gosh, Lord, if, if you have a 100% track record when it comes to all of the things that were prophesied and fulfilled, then that means that you'll have 100% track record when it comes to all the things that are prophesied and have not yet been fulfilled. Do you see what I'm saying? It builds our faith. Looking back, reading the scriptures, builds our faith for the future because God does not change. When Jesus made his triumphal entry, two things took place. One, he was declaring himself to be Israel's king, their Messiah. And the second thing that took place is that Jesus was deliberately challenging the religious leaders by coming in the way he came in, by fulfilling scripture as he fulfilled scripture, which set in motion the official plot to arrest and crucify Jesus. Now, I want to emphasize this because, guys, remember in Matthew's gospel account, we're told that the religious leaders determined not to arrest Jesus during the feast. Don't you love that? We, you know, men, we come up with our own little plans. You know, we're going to get him. We're going to get him. We're going to destroy that guy. But let's not do it. Do it during the feast because there's a lot of people here, a lot of pilgrims, and uh, we don't know if there's an uprising. Let's wait till all of these people go home. And uh, the majority of his ministry seemed to take place in the Galilee, so the, we'll wait till those people leave and they go back home to the Galilee, and then we'll get them. But God had a greater plan. What was God's plan? Well, we could go back again. I'm trying to connect the two for you. We could go back to Exodus chapter 12. Passover lamb must die on Passover, not a week after, not two weeks after, on Passover. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must die on Passover. So they could come up with their plans, and they did have their plans. But Jesus had his plan, and it would be fulfilled. Do you know, when I mention, when I refer to Jesus making his triumphal entry on the day, the very day, I'm referring to what we see in Daniel's gospel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. We know that Jesus made his triumphal entry on the exact day. Daniel reads Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, and we kind of scratch our head, if you're not familiar with that, you say, well, that's weird. So you say, well, it's 69 sevens, and you say, okay, that didn't help. And so then you put it into terms that we would understand, that's 469 years, and we say, okay, that's, that's better. And when you look at the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, it's so intriguing because Daniel receives information from the Lord that Messiah will come to the day, 469 years from the day that Nehemiah, a man who did not exist, was not born, would receive a green light to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the burnt down, broken down walls of the city and, and gates of the city. And in our very Bibles, you know, we could go to the book of Nehemiah. We could see the date that Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, gave him the thumbs up. You could go on back, you know. We know that Ezra went back to deal with the temple, the destruction of the temple. But Nehemiah went back to deal with kind of the physical part of the city. And from that day, the Lord's prophetic clock concerning Messiah began to tick. It's intriguing, guys. Do you know that we're living between the Daniel prophecy where it says that Messiah will be cut off? That's intriguing. That should get our attention because the word means crucified when people weren't crucifying people. Does God know what he's talking about? When Messiah is crucified, it will stop. And we're living between that 69 and the 70th week. A week is seven years, the seven year period of time and that seven year period of time according to the bible will be fulfilled during the tribulation period but we're living between those the clock the prophetic clock if you will concerning messiah has stopped when messiah was cut off but of course many things continue and we're waiting for that last seven to start ticking off our bibles are not boring our bibles are exciting Jesus, well, the next day, he, 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 well, let me go back to verse 11 for a moment. It says, and Jesus went into Jerusalem, and so he makes his triumphal entry. He goes into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Bethany, we know from the Bible, Bible students, we know that Bethany was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this family, two sisters and a brother. Uh, Lazarus, of course, died. Jesus resurrected him from the dead four days later. So they lived in Bethany. So apparently Bethany and their home in Bethany would be the place where Jesus would stay when he was in Judea. Um, And so he goes in to... Jerusalem, you'll note whenever you read your Bible, you never go down to Jerusalem, you never go over to Jerusalem, when it's talking about the temple, you're always going up you always go up to Jerusalem and so he makes that triumphal entry from the Mount of Olives, coming down into the Kidron Valley and then back up into Jerusalem, into the you know, where the temple was located he looks around, he sees all things then he leaves and goes back down into the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives over to Bethany. And then we have the fig tree. It says that he sees from afar a fig tree having leaves and he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. So he's hungry. He's hungry, he sees a fig tree. No, that shouldn't surprise us. This is the land of fig, fig trees and dates, where this is a city named after figs and dates, you know. And And so he sees it, and he makes his way over to it, and there's nothing on it. And the Bible's clear. Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, God incarnate, God in the flesh, has a temper tantrum and curses the tree. I'm being facetious. Do you see it that way? If you see it that way, you don't know the nature of Jesus. I'm trying to make a point, guys. If If we just simply read this, you would say, what's up with Jesus? Boy, he's a little tense, you know. No figs on the fig tree, and it's not fig season. Come on. This, I mean, this is, Jesus is being irrational. The point is this. Either the triumphal entry, the withering of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the lesson from the fig tree, either they're all um, random, unconnected events that have nothing to do with each other, or, or they're all linked together to make a point. And I suggest that they're all linked together to make a point. In Matthew chapter twelve, we're not going to get there today, for time's sake. But in Matthew chapter twelve, you look at the first eleven verses. What does it deal with? The parable of the wicked vine dressers. Who's the vine dressers? Well, where's the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is Jerusalem. The wild, the wicked wine uh, vine dressers are the people, the leaders there in Israel. It deals with judgment. Next chapter, Matthew. Or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. What does it deal with? The destruction of the temple. Why is the temple going to be destroyed? Because of the rejection of their Messiah. You go a little bit further. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. The Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, guys, when you read the gospel account concerning the Great Tribulation... It's not so much a warning to us; it's a warning to the Jews. When you see, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. For us, we think, Sabbath that means nothing to us. Sabbath, I could I'll, I could travel, I could. but if you're a Jew in, in Israel, Sabbath means everything because everything shuts down for you. We need to be careful how we read the Scriptures. I believe that all of these events point pointed point (laughs) to God's coming judgment on Israel for the rejection of their Messiah and for their religious hypocrisy. Stay with me. We're looking back. We have history on our side. Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us that he begins to weep. The word weep means he begins to howl, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, remember that? He's weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, those who, you know, God would send his prophets and they would kill the prophets, and. God would send his messengers and they would destroy the messengers, you know. And, and, and God has blessed you in so many ways and yet you're indifferent toward God. And, and, and Jesus says, how a, we how would a long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, it's not I've dropped the ball. It's you've dropped the ball. You, you're, you're, not, you're not looking for me. You're not interested in me. You, you, you're, you're able, he would say, to the religious leaders, you're able to look at the sky, to look at the clouds, and to determine what tomorrow will be like, but you cannot, you cannot decipher, you cannot discern the signs, the biblical signs, that your prophets, your prophets spoke of. Was Jesus surprised that there was no fruit on the tree? I don't think so. In fact, again, maybe I'm reading into it, but I think of verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, so when he looked around at everything, and it says, and as the hour was already late. The hour was late. What does that mean? Prophetically speaking, not just that it was late that day, and so he's going to go back across the Kidron Valley up to Bethany before dark. I mean, that was probably... You know, the, 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 the but I, I can't help but think of the time is late. Your day has come, your Messiah has come. The time is, is late. Today is the day of reckoning. Today is the day that you need to recognize your Messiah. Another thing that jumped out at me was verse 13. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, so the leaves were promising, I'll explain that in a moment. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Now, I think this is interesting, at least it's interesting to me, because prophetically speaking, as Jesus was standing in Bethany, he would be able to look across, and he would see the white, shining temple on the Temple Mount. Maybe you know how sound carries he might have even been able to hear the singing or the instruments or just the joyous sounds coming from the city of Jerusalem he sees from afar what does he see a fig tree i wonder if there's any fruit on it are you tracking with me like the fig tree israel's israel As a nation, it flourished with the leaves or with the appearance of religious piety. But they lacked the fruit of true righteousness, the true righteousness that God demanded. And this is what we see in the scriptures, isn't it? This is why when Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed, they thought, this is impossible. Remember that the the temple, the structure was still under construction when Jesus was there. It was shortly completed and then destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It was destroyed to the extent, just as Jesus said, not one stone will remain upon another. You could go to Israel today and you could see the stones on the pavement fulfilled. The fig tree, going back to the fig tree, the fig tree was a picture of false advertising. And this is what I mean. The time frame was Passover, so it was the middle of the month of Nisan, or April, from our perspective. And uh, the scripture tells us it was not fig season. So you say, okay, no no figs, not, not fig season. But in Israel, the fig trees produced a crop of small edible buds in March, so earlier on. And you knew that these buds were there because the tree would have the appearance of, of these large green leaves in early April. So the buds would fall off. The leaves were there, advertising, you know, it's fig season. The figs are coming. <laughs> and um, and then, of course, the figs would come. I think it's interesting to note that the edible uh, buds that would grow on these fig trees were food, not obviously a great amount of food, but they, they were really for the poor people at that time. And so um, he goes up to the tree, he sees that it's green, it's not fig, but it has it's advertising as if it might have those edible buds, but there's nothing on the tree. And so he, he curses it. In fact, I read that the absence of these edible buds, despite the tree's green foliage promising their presence, indicated that the fig tree would bear no fruit that year at all. You know, guys, listen. If you have a biblical mindset, and the only way you get a biblical mindset is by, by being people of the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the scriptures. If you have a biblical mindset, you are learning, we haven't arrived, but we are learning the nature of our Lord. So we're not going to attribute something to our Lord that the scripture does not already tell us about him. So as I said, kind of tongue-in-cheek a few moments ago, that Jesus was hungry and he was, you know, what's that, hangry, and uh, he, he threw a temper tantrum, of course, that, that's not true at all. I believe that what Jesus did was a dramatic, prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. And again, I I say that to you with history on my side. What happened? He said, Well, I wasn't a Christian. I don't know these things. You went to school, you go to public school. (laughs) You surely heard about the destruction of Israel and when it happened and how it happened and so on and so forth, you know. It was destroyed by the way, unconnected, unrelated to a degree to what we're looking at today, but you have a nation of people who are scattered just as the prophets said that they would be throughout the entire world, who would be scattered, and yet God, as he's speaking through the prophets, Jeremiah or Isaiah, whoever the prophet might be, as he's speaking judgment upon this nation that had been blessed beyond measure, as he would pronounce a judgment upon them, he would immediately say, In essence, but I'm not done with you. I'm gonna regather you. I'm not gonna call you, I'm gonna call you back. You're gonna become a nation. You come to the end of the prophet Isaiah and he asks the question, Can a nation be born in a day? And the answer is yes. Again, we have history on our side. In May of nineteen forty-eight, a nation was birthed. Israel, the nation of Israel. So you guys listen, you think biblically or you think politically, or you know you, Israel is number one enemy. You don't know your Bibles. God has a plan for Israel. And if you know your Bibles, you'll understand what's happening today in the Middle East. All eyes are on Israel. And we've watched a miracle, and most people, they don't even recognize it. And it's happened right before their eyes that you have a people that were dispersed throughout the entire world who have come back in our lifetime, come back to their land, to their promised land, just as God said they would. And guys, when you look at Bible prophecy, there has to be a nation, Israel, there has to be a nation of Israel in Israel, in the land of Israel, for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. When Jesus makes his second coming, he's not coming to the United States of America; he's coming to Israel. Read the scriptures. When he sets up his kingdom upon the earth, it you know it seems like headquarters is going to be Israel because this is the land. That God has blessed. This is the land that he gave to Abraham and his, and his sons. In spite of their rebellion and their unbelief and their indifference toward God, God has blessed them. And I think it's so phenomenal as you consider what we're seeing in the world. And, and as you look at history and you say, man, God did judge that fig tree. And as we'll see next week, it's as if God is saying to the nation of Israel, then, and he'll say it in the future, where is my fruit? Where's my fruit? It's my vineyard, and you owe me, Israel, on that. We could easily say, yeah, the Jews, they dropped the ball. They're so unfaithful. Oh, they were so blessed. Hey, 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 once you start going down that road, you better stop and look in the mirror. Because how many professing Christians are you bearing fruit? Jesus says if we abide in him, if we abide in his word, we'll bear fruit. So many Christians, they don't even concern themselves with such things. What difference does that make? It's the same thing. We belong to him. He expects fruit from us. The fruit is the byproduct of being connected to the the vine, Jesus. If we're connected to him, we're going to bear fruit. It's just going to be a natural, supernatural type of thing. Well, then you go on the cleansing of the temple. And and again, we know I'm almost done, believe it or not. Um, The cleansing of the temple, you look at that. And again, if you don't know the nature of Jesus because you don't have a biblical view... You're saying, Jesus is just having a bad day. He's just, you know, throwing tables around and just being a bully. And, of course, that's not what was happening at all. In fact, this was not the first time that Jesus did this. This is, biblically speaking, the second time that Jesus did this. Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry, and Jesus did this toward the end of his ministry. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the issue? What was going on there? And this is what the issue was. The profiteers in league with the priest (laughs) were making merchandise of the people. You've come to worship. You've come to the temple because remember the Jews had no place else to worship. A synagogue was not a place of worship. A synagogue was a place of learning. The temple was the place of worship for the Jews. Well, you've come to the temple. We're glad you're here. All these pilgrims coming from afar, you know. Oh, we see that you brought your... Year-old lamb, wonderful, you know, to offer that here at the temple. But there's a problem. I, I see a blemish here as they rub some charcoal on its leg or something. I don't know what they did. And they said, you know, listen, if you're going to offer lambs here, they need to be, they, they need to be approved, approved lambs. And, and if you 're going to pay your temple tax, every male Jew would pay a temple tax once a year, about a two days wage if you 're going to pay your temple tax here you need to you need to pay with temple currency. so they were exchanging money, shekels for temple currency and animal for animals, you know approved sacrificial animals and Jesus sees this and he 's irate and he begins to throw the tables over. And, and we see, we read that Jesus kept them from going into the, the, the courts. He kept them from doing that. So again, there are some people, and again, it's because you're not reading the word of God, that we they want to see Jesus as this kind of, Mansy pansy, is that the right term? Just this weak man that never stands up and never has, and oh, he never raises his voice up against, you know, above a whisper or something. And the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Because you know what? If he was that way, they would have pushed him aside, set their tables back up, and went on doing what they were doing. But apparently, this disrupted things, at least on that day. What was the big deal? Here's the big deal. They were in the outer courts. The outer courts were the only place where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come to worship. Gentiles weren't allowed in the inner courts of the temple. They were only allowed in the outer courts of the temple. Remember, there was a court specifically for the Gentiles, and all of this was happening. What a horrible witness that is, horrible example that is, Israel, I called you to be a light to the nations. Israel, this is my house. And my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a den of robbers. Which, by the way, is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 7. Do you guys see this? There's a pattern here. Jesus... He leaves there, and that's creating problems for him, as we'll see, but he doesn't seem to care. He didn't care. And then we have the lesson of the fig tree. And to me, if we keep things in context, the lesson of the fig tree is not just pray believing and you'll get what you want. Because I want to ask you something. Do we have anything recorded in human history where someone has removed a mountain from its place and cast it into the sea. We haven't. So either Jesus was exaggerating or Jesus was making a point. And I suggest that Jesus was making a point And I suggest to you that the point that Jesus was making making is found in verse 22. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Do you have faith in God? We are accepted by God the Father through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Time is running out. Time is running out. Time is running out. You need... You need to respond to his loving offer of salvation and life and that more abundantly. Nate came up after the first service and, and he said something and I thought it was so profound and I almost forgot about it. But I, he said, you know, the cult was, was newly born. It was a cult. It was young. It was prepared for Jesus. I said, yeah. And then he went on to say, the fig tree was not prepared for Jesus. I said, yeah. And then he said, and the Jews should have been prepared for Jesus. And I said, yeah, good. I asked him if I could steal it. I gave him the credit for it. But, you know, guys, context is important. And when I say context, you guys come on up. When I say context, it's not just the context of the Gospel of Mark but it's the context of the synoptic Gospels, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke the context of Matthew's Gospel triumphal entry cleansing of the temple, again all of this is prophetic, fig tree parable of the two sons, do you remember that? do you remember what the father said? He went to the first son and he says, I want you to go work in my vineyard. And he said, I will. But he did not. Then he went to the second son, I want you to work in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. And then he had a change of heart and did. Do you think that that's prophetically speaking of something? And then the context goes on, the wicked vine dressers. And then in Matthew's gospel account, the wedding feast. Read it. Study it. The Lord was speaking to the children of Israel of coming judgment because of their rejection of the Messiah. And from our perspective, all of that is fulfilled. That's done. So does God hate Israel? No, God loves Israel. Israel is God's the apple of God's eye. God is not done with Israel. But right now, we live in the age of grace. Right now, we live in the age of the Gentiles, as the Bible says. And when the church is removed, and we will be removed before the great tribulation, I believe that all of his focus will be back on Israel. God is not done with Israel. God is a covenant keeper, he's the promise keeper. Remember years ago, men that men's thing, promise keepers? I never got into that because I thought men aren't promise keepers. There's only one promise keeper. It's God. Speaking about making merchandise off of people, <laughs> I could really go off on that, but I won't. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we pray. I pray that if there's anyone here today, upstairs, downstairs, if there's anyone listening to the service online, Lord, and they have not placed their faith in you, Lord, please. I, I, if, I, if I had the uh, ability to persuade someone to believe, someone could come along and persuade them not to believe. But we pray, Lord, that you would persuade all those that need to believe to believe in you, Lord. We pray, Father, that people would be born again today, born of your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who take seriously our walk with you. Thank you for our lives, for the abundance of our lives, for the many blessings that you bestow upon us. Forgive us for the times that we think that we've done it, that we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've made these things happen rather than recognizing it's your providence, it's your grace, it's your mercy. So, Lord, would you now do in our hearts... What no man could do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.